Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Okay, I know it's COVID and all, but you guys feel so far away from me. <laughs> I don't know why there's so much distance. But it is good to be here. Uh, just thankful that uh, I get to meet some of you here for the first time and uh, really appreciate just being part of this uh, new community. If you haven't met my wife yet, she's actually over there. Her name is Abby. There, you want to raise <laughs> So we're really thankful to be part of uh, this uh, this church now. You know, yesterday I texted my kids and my wife yesterday, and I asked them, um, what are my pet peeves in preparation for this um, sermon? And almost immediately, my eldest son replied back and said, being hot or in the sun. <laughs> and so I laughed because I was just reflecting on the Easter message I gave just a few weeks ago, and I was laughing because I, I found myself complaining on Easter day that it was hot and just left, I think, a bad impression <laughs> all of you that this guy likes to complain but my, my kids know that about me because like when we're on vacation and or we're having family time someplace outdoors they notice that when we're walking to a place I don't walk in a straight line I actually follow the path of a building shadow and I'm like you know going in and out of shadows and everything and they're always laughing at me because I'm, I'm taking the longer way and I don't know why but I'm, I'm really pathetic when it comes to heat um, it, it affects me a lot in fact, um, I have this little uh, waist blower. I don't know if you've ever seen these before. It's a little fan that you clip on the back of your waist so um, air shoots up the, you know, your back and just cools you down about 10 degrees. So if you've never seen this, it's phenomenal. You should get one. Um, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were actually planning our outdoor service, and a group of us were getting together just trying to talk through the logistics of it. And at the very end, you know, I kind of raised my hand and, and I asked them a, a sincere question. Are pastors allowed to preach in hats at this church? <laughs> and they looked at me, I think, with a little confusion and they said yes. And, and so I was happy about their answer, but I, at the same time I was thinking, I don't know if I feel comfortable about doing that. But immediately afterwards, I saw Rob preaching a couple of weeks ago with his baseball cap, and I was like, hallelujah, thank God. I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I can just, just wear my hat now, and it's great to be part of a church that has so much freedom in Christ, because I, I didn't have this freedom back in my old church. You know, I was, every time I prayed, I had to take off my, um, you know, our head covering. But it is, um, you know, we, I, when I think about pet, pet peeves, I know we all have them. In fact, Jesus had um, some pet peeves, and I love that Jesus had a pet peeve. And one of the things that absolutely bugged Jesus was when he would look at a tree and there was no fruit. And I, I've never heard of that pet peeve apart from Jesus, and that's one of the peculiar things about Jesus. In fact, there's this one story found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 where Jesus is hungry. He sees this fig tree from far away, and so he approaches it. And then as he gets closer, he realizes that there are no, no fruit. And so what does he do? He curses the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <laughs> and it's kind of like the disciples are like looking at him thinking, Jesus, lay back. You know, what, what's going on here? 
But it says that early in the next morning, the disciples passed by that same fig tree withered from all its roots. And, and Peter remembered what Jesus said. And he says, Rabbi, the, the tree that you cursed has withered. And, and all the disciples are like, what in the world just happened? And I imagine if I was a disciple walking around Jerusalem with Jesus and, and we passed by a bunch of figs with um, a bunch of trees with no figs, I imagine that I would be scared for all those trees we passed by. You know, I would like be like trying to protect, you know, the fig trees from Jesus and, and all of that. But for some reason, Jesus is so, is so focused on bearing fruit. And so he uses this analogy repeatedly, right, in, in different parts of his teachings. In Luke 13, he talks about how a fig tree that doesn't bear fruit should be cut down. In Matthew, he talks about how you can tell the difference between a good tree and a bad tree by its fruit. And in this passage that we find ourselves in today, if you have you know, um, your Bible on your um, phone or whatever, um, look at John chapter 15. And, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will become more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so here's this, this teaching now Jesus is saying that, that the father is the gardener and, and Jesus himself is this true vine. And then he even begins to talk a little bit about, like, you know, a, a little lesson on pruning. That pruning is so important because, like, vines, they have this tendency to just grow all over the place and into themselves. And if, if you don't prune a vine properly, sometimes it, it grows so much into itself that it casts a shadow over itself where, you know, the, the, the vines below isn't receiving enough sunlight and it's not able to produce fruit. And vines are cut in such a way so that, you know, um, branches that aren't producing, they cut it so all the nutrients can go and, and produce, you know, good fruit in, in the good vine. And so Jesus is, you know, trying to teach his disciples this. And so in verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus, again, is trying to emphasize you know what, I want you guys to bear fruit because bearing fruit is so important. And imagine the disciples living with Jesus all these years thinking, yep, bearing fruit is really important. And so Jesus is trying to push this. He's saying the way you will bear fruit is if you abide in me, if you remain with me, if you stay connected. Because if, if you don't stay connected, it'll be like you're a branch that isn't bearing and it just kind of withers away. And it is cast aside. And in verse 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus wants us to bear fruit in order that the world might see that we are his disciples. And so Jesus, you know, shows here that there are two kinds of branches. Branches that don't bear fruit and branches that do. And so Jesus continues to expound in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. And so this is how we can be the kind of branch that can bear fruit is by remaining in the love of Jesus. And then he says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. And then he, he goes on in verse 16. I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And this is my command that you ought to love one another. And I think this passage is very important for us as a church because I know LBCF is in this very, is very much in a period of transition. And whenever there's a period of transition, there's like a lot of confusion, a lot of change, a lot of disorientation. And, and so the question is, how do we orient ourselves when, when things are, are changing so much? And I want to just t take a step back first and say that the context of John 15 is actually hours before his death. We find that, you know, in the few chapters before, as he's in, already in Jerusalem, that he's trying to reemphasize the things that are important, the things that he's been trying to teach the disciples in the past three and a half years. And, and this is like this, this like, you know, lesson if I could summarize everything that I've, I've ever taught you, it's this. It's this commandment. All the laws, all the prophets hang on this, that you love one another. And I know love is a word that is used often, not only in Christian church, but in everyday life. But it happens to be a word that I really think um, long and hard about because it's, it's been used um, towards me in ways that I often don't understand. You see, back in 2014, I gave a message to a church I was pastoring at that created a lot of chaos. Basically, I talked to the church about being a third-way church, a church where we can live in the tension of disagreement, a church that we might be coming from different theological and political viewpoints, and a lot of things, you know, related to sexuality, gender, politics, and, and even race. But can we maintain this fellowship? And I remember at that one particular message, there were people that were angry, confused. Um, they were upset. And there was this one couple in particular that were very close friends of mine who came up after me or who came up to me afterwards and you could tell something was up because they, they looked tearful. And they said, Danny, we can't stay at this church anymore. But know that we will always love you. And with that, they gave me a hug. Um, we wept tears and they walked away. And as I thought about that situation, that conversation, their words that said, you know what? We can't stay at this church anymore, but we want you to know that we will always love you. I thought long and hard about what that word meant, love. And so I, I, in my confusion, I decided to write them a letter. I, I said, when you say you love me, but choose to distance yourself from me, what does love mean? How do you love someone from a distance? Is that even love? Because in my mind, love is incarnational. Love is a relationship. So I don't understand what you mean when you say you love me, but you walk away. 
And I think about that story because I know that's what's happening in so many families and churches in the U.S. right now. We are a nation divided in the Christian church. There are people within families that are breaking off relationships with one another. There are churches that are like shouting at each other, you know, in social media or, or in, in so many different places and trying to say that, you know, we, we are the right way, you guys are wrong. And there's so much like distress and confusion. And, and if, if we are to look at the church right now when, and think back at Jesus' words that says, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. I don't think the world can look at the church right now and say that love is the defining thing that dictates what the church is about. And like I said, LBCF is in the midst of a lot of transitions. You know, we've had a couple of beloved pastors who are no longer here. We're still trying to work through this international pandemic. There's political, social, religious upheaval. There's, you know, difficult conversations about sexuality and race. But I think about the story of Jesus and the way he discipled and the way he brought together this group of disciples from the left and the right. He brought together zealots and tax collectors, both liberals and conservatives. And he told them, learn to love one another. It was this intentional bringing together of this broad group of diverse people and asking them to think deeply about what love is. Because love, Jesus says, is how the world will know that you are my disciples. And, and I happen to take love literally. I take love to mean that it has to be incarnational. Because when Jesus says you have to be willing to die for your brother and sister, that's the only way it would make sense. That you have to be in this committed relationship with people where you are willing to do whatever it takes to love them. And so whenever I find myself in a confusing situation, whenever I'm in a difficult relationship, whenever I'm in a debate, whether it's political or theological or whatever it is, when I feel a deep sense of disorientation, the primary question that comes to my mind, that helps give me direction, that helps give me clarity through this fog of just not knowing what in the world is going on. The question I always ask myself is this, what does love look like? Because that to me gets to the very core of who Jesus is. My, my question shouldn't be about how do I debate this person that I have a negative label against? How do I make this argument that will convince this other person? How do I prove the other person wrong? Because for Jesus, it's not a debate about theology. It's about willing to die for one another. As Jesus said, be like me. I am willing to lay my life for you. And so what gives us most clarity in the midst of disorientation and confusion and all the, the, the things that we are seeing in the Christian church today is that love is what gives us clarity. 
It's not the cheap kind of love that says, I love you anyway as some sort of platitude, but it's this like intense trying to figure out this love question because it is the true indicator of who we are in Christ, of whether or not we are truly his disciples. Are we genuinely able to give each other grace and generosity in the midst of relationship? Because walking away or cutting people off negates the ability for love to be incarnated. And so what does love look like? It's being able to say, I value you. I will walk with you. I am committed to you. Because why? We share the same Savior. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And how do we stay engaged in this in this relationship. But, but I need to put a little parenthesis here because I don't want anyone taking this, what I'm saying, the wrong way. I, wanna, I, don't wa- I, I mean, I want to be careful here because I don't want to suggest that you stay in an abusive relationship and somehow take what I'm saying and say, well, I, gotta get s- I have to be stuck in this person that is like, you know, abusing me in some kind of physical way or whatever. It's not about that. It's 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 something I think that is peculiar that is happening in the church today in the sense of like greater disagreement and disunity in the church. How do we love one another? As I think about how this problem originated, I have to think back at the history of the church and you know when the church was first formed with early disciples, um, they really had one creed. And basically, that creed was Jesus is Lord. That's what they abided by. But something happened, you know, in the um, fourth century where Constantine officialized Christianity as the religion of the state. And now Christianity moved from this place of of being this this place that served people where Christianity became um, institutionalized. And now there were people in power that was aligned with politics and, and, and religion and all of that. And, and they came up with trying to f- formulate, you know, this creedal system. This is what we believe. And if you don't believe this, you are a heretic. And not only that, people were literally killed for not believing the same things. So the creeds have this um, unusual beginning. It was uh, a way of saying who's in and who's out. It was really a way to, to oppress those who were in the margins. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love the creeds. I, I, I affirm what the creeds say. I affirm that I believe in God, the Father of Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and so on. I affirm the value of the creeds. But unfortunately, what is left out in the creeds, I think, is what is most important. It's not so much what the creeds say, but rather what the creeds omit, what it doesn't say. And what is missing from the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and all the other creeds is Jesus' great commandment that the greatest thing is to love one another. 
It's all about beliefs. And nowhere in these creeds does it ever bring us back to what Jesus said the commandments are all about. It's to love one another. And so there's this glaring omission where since then the church has moved towards mental ascent to correct doctrine, to dictate who belongs, who's in, and who's out. But I don't think Jesus intended for the church to behave this way. Jesus kept it simple, and he said, Remain in me and love one another. Recognize the value and importance and the beauty of the person that is next to you. I love what Henry Nouwen says, ministry is recognizing and receiving the gifts of others. I recognize in you a divine presence. You are the Christ who comes to me and the stranger, the prisoner who is naked, the hungry, the one who is naked. You know, one of the things I miss about vacations and going to places I have never been to before is um, it awakens the curiosity in me. Every building I pass by, every, every tree I see, every highway I, I drive through is something new. And I'm like constantly just looking around my surroundings, talking to new people and trying to get to know who the locals are and and there's just something um, magical, right? There's, there's something even spiritual and beautiful about coming to a place that you've never been to before and just being like overwhelmed by, by all the surroundings around us. But one of the hard things about familiarity is that we begin to grow used to one another and we begin to forget the beauty that is next to the person it is in the person next to us. And I believe that there's just a thin veil that separates what God sees in us and what we see in other people. Because when we're able to look in this room and look at the person next to us or behind us and take a step back, and even now as I'm looking at, in, at each of you, I'm asking God, will you awaken my eyes to see the divine nature in each person? Will you help me not to take the other person for granted? Will you help me to see what you see? And so in a sense, brothers and sisters, there is beauty happening all around us. And Jesus is inviting us to partake in this beauty in the same way the Father looks at the Son and says, this is my beloved. In the same way Jesus looks at us and says that we are the beloved of the Lord. That Jesus wants us to look at one another and say, you bear the divine image of God. And I think if we could just see that, if we could sense that, then our own lives will be transformed. I think about the accounts in the Old Testament where there were situations where heaven and earth intersected. Where when Moses went up to Sinai and, or when he went to the burning bush, that somehow heaven intersected with earth and the divine glory appeared. Or it's when the, the construction of the Holy of Holies where the divine presence was there. 
or when Jacob wrestled with God and there was this ladder to heaven and, and Jacob said that God was in this place I did, and I didn't even <coughs> realize it. But ultimately, it was in Jesus when he became man where heaven and earth came together perfectly. But now, brothers and sisters, because of the resurrection, because Jesus' promise of the divine advocate, the comforter, the Holy Spirit now resides within each of us. Each of us, the church, is where heaven and earth intersect. There is beauty here. And God is calling each of us to pay attention. To pay attention because something beautiful is happening. Don't love from a distance. Don't label people here in negative ways. Move towards one another. When I was in Hawaii a few years ago, I was walking um, down a river trail. And this river, this freshwater river emptied out into the Pacific Ocean. But before it emptied out into the ocean, there was this body of water, and I noticed that there was a sign on it that said estuary. And I had never, I mean, I heard what estuary, the word estuary before, but I never knew what it meant, so I decided to read the sign. And so on the sign, it explained what this body of water was, that there were freshwater fish that came from the mountains that would actually go into this estuary stay here for a little while before it became a saltwater fish. And there were actually saltwater fish that went to the estuary that became freshwater fish. And it blew my mind because growing up, I had only heard that there were only freshwater and saltwater fish. There was nothing in between or things that went from left to right or whatever. And then in this estuary, it also said there is also aquatic life that resides here in different parts of salinity. And so this estuary was a protected place. And I thought how beautiful that is because it's so easy to put things on the left and the right on one side or the other. But when I look at this church, and in the past three months that I've been able to get to know the people of LBCF, I've been amazed at how diverse this church is in terms of its theology, in terms of its, its um, outlook on life, in terms of just a lot of like divisive political conversations. And I'm amazed to be part of a church that is willing to stay engaged. And in my mind, I look at you all and I look at myself and I say, God, this is an estuary. Because this place, if you don't realize it, is so uniquely different and beautiful. It is weird. It is peculiar. Because in so many different places, you find homogenous settings where people are just believing all the same things. And there's a lot of fighting back and forth. And we could fight back and forth if we wanted to. But instead, we do so with, with dialogue, civility, with grace, with cadres. We are engaged. 
And I can't tell you how important LBCF is right now in this time in the U.S., in a time of deep polarization where everyone is fleeing from one another. This is a time to lean into the teachings of Jesus and to pay attention to Jesus' commandments and to take it seriously that if you love one another, you are indeed my disciples and you will show the world who you are. Because our greatest apologetic is not an argument, but it is rather the apologetic of love that will differentiate us, that will prove to the world that we are followers of Christ. And so I know this, this season is difficult. There's been a lot of changes for the church. And there probably be more difficult conversations. But in the midst of all that, I ask that we would all pay attention to Jesus' commandment. And whenever things feel disorienting, feel confusing, almost feels like blasphemous even, ask yourself the question, what does love look like? Because love is what will give us clarity in this difficult time. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you. But God, even in the Sunday morning, we can practice unity. We practice it in the midst of our differences. We practice it in the way we hold tension and disagreement. And so God, will you open our eyes, will you awaken our senses to the mystical, to the magical, the charismatic even. And that God, you would help us focus in on the holiness, the intersection between heaven and earth that is present amongst us. And that, God, that is where we will meet people. And we will say to one another, I belong to you, you belong to me. I love you. I am here. I am with you. And so, God, give us grace. Help us not to behave in the way the rest of the world might behave and the way it responds. But God, by faith, by your grace, help us to lean towards love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.